today. But let's dive into uh, God's word. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 30 is what I'll be preaching. I'll just read verses 12 and 13 at the beginning. If you don't have a Bible, like Ben said, there should be one near you. So feel free to grab it. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 13. I'll read this and then I'll pray and then we'll seek to learn what God has to say to us today through his word. The word of God reads this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me pray. Father, I pray right now that you would awaken us physically and spiritually. That, Father, you would feed us with what we need that is more of you. That, God, you would make us humble so that we would put ourselves in the position of a learner and a willingness to say, oh God, wherever you and I disagree, I want to follow you. And that God, you would not only make us humble, but you would make us loving. We would be set free from bitterness or desire for revenge. And you would stir us up to sacrificially love others. We know the only way that can happen is if we see you clearer. And see your love for us today. So expose yourself and your power and your greatness to us. That we might walk in humble love. I pray it in Jesus name. Amen. That's where we're going today. I'm not going to... Begin with anything other than telling you the main point. Here it is. Ready? Mark, set, go. Um, True obedience is humble love. True obedience is humble love. We know that there's this sense that any of us can externally obey, right? We can kind of force our will to kind of do a right thing. But biblically speaking, obedience is from a heart of faith. It's from a heart of love for God and love for others. And so what we begin to see Paul laying out in the Scriptures is that true obedience, what he's going after, is ultimately, it's a humility that acknowledges our need for God and that overflows as a learner to pour our lives out sacrificially for others. That's obedience. The Bible says, Jesus says this, y'all can summarize the whole Bible with love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you do the whole law is to love your neighbor. So true obedience is this love, but it's a humble love. So let's look at it here. Chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through 30. I just want to start at verse 12 with the first three words. Therefore, my beloved. Therefore. It's not rocket science. Whenever the word therefore is there, he's saying, I've just told you something that now informs everything I'm about to tell you. What's it there for? And he is pointing us back to chapter 2 when he begins to say, don't forget all that the Spirit of God has done in your life. He has washed you. He's made you new. He's set you free. His Spirit dwells within you. You've received comfort in your pain. And He has come alongside you. You've got affection and sympathy. We're united together. And now, go live a life of love. That's the point. It reminds me of the game that I used to play as a kid or when I was a youth pastor, we would always do this. And it was a game where, you know, you've got this bucket and it's filled with water and you have a sponge. And the goal is to fill up the sponge and to run to the other side of the field and to wring out the sponge in order to fill up the bucket. Then the next person goes until the first one to fill up the bucket wins. Or sometimes they'll vary, make it a little different where they make it variated where it's the guy has it and you all stand in line and you put it over your head and then the next person puts it under the legs and the next person put it over the head. And then by the time you get to the end, of course, they've just squeezed the mess out of that sponge and there's no water. And so they just have to keep doing it until somebody gets enough water in the bucket. They win. This is what Paul is doing. 
He is saying, you have been filled up so much. You've got encouragement from the Scriptures and from the Spirit. You have been comforted in radical ways. And your life is meant to be squeezed out for others. That's what He says. He says, therefore, in love and in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. And then in verse 4, He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's love. That's humility. If you've been filled up, squeeze your life out onto others by considering others more significant than you and placing others' needs and interests above your own. And so then he says, you want to know who did this perfectly? Have the same attitude as Jesus had. Who, being fully God, came down and became humanity, not losing His Godness, but bringing on humanity so that descending from glory, He might be like us. He might suffer like we suffer. Hurt like we hurt. Weep like we weep. Be betrayed like we've been betrayed. Be mocked like we've been mocked. And the Bible says that He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see this? He was the perfect picture of humility. He was the perfect picture of love. And the Bible describes that as obedience that led Him to death. True obedience is humble love. That's where I get the main point. And so he says, therefore, in light of that, humble love looks a certain way. But it is all built upon this very first thing. And I have four points that I want to lay out for us. And it's this. Humble love looks to Christ. Number two, humble love learns together. Number three, Humble love spiritually labors. And number four, humble love lights up a dark world. And so, the very first point is seen just in the therefore. Humble love looks to Jesus who gave up His life so that we would have death to self. As He died, we would be set free. Free from being defined by our performance. We'd be washed clean. We'd be delivered. Shame would be removed. Guilt would be wiped away. We would find full freedom and joy in surrender. Christ died to make that possible. And what else is beautiful is this. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, he says this, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name. Above every name. No famous person's name is higher than Jesus Christ. Not King James LeBron. Not Steph Curry. Not Jay-Z or Beyonce. No name you can think of is higher than Christ. He is of supreme worth because He is the perfect picture of humility, the perfect picture of love, and He laid down His life in perfect obedience. And in that humility, 1 Peter chapter 5 just jumps out at us. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6 says this, Humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time, He will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The care of God for you and me was proven in that He gave His Son to die for us. What happened to Jesus when He humbled Himself to the point of death? He was exalted. And His name was placed above every other name. So that right now, every knee should be bowing to Him because He is King. And one day, Romans 14 says, every knee will bow. Every single knee. From the greatest agnostic to the most vehement atheist, 
every knee will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And it will lead some to eternal judgment because they refuse to bow their knee now. And it will lead some to eternal life and joy because they humbled themselves and said, I'm a sinner, can't save myself. I need Christ's death. I need His forgiveness. And I trust in Him. A humble love looks to Christ. Ultimately, and this is where we're going next week, ultimately, we must first receive God's love before we can give it. You can't wring out a sponge when it has no water. You must soak up more of Jesus. So if we don't begin by looking at Jesus, you will have nothing to wring out on others. Humble love looks to Christ. And the very reward that was for Jesus, namely, if you humble yourself, He was exalted. When we humble ourselves, we will be exalted. Not worship like Jesus is because we will be the worshipers, but we will be exalted out of our suffering, out of our pain, into an eternity with Him forever and ever. That motivates our humble love by looking to Jesus. Number two is that humble love learns together. I want you to look at the passage. It says, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... Paul's looking at this church and says, I love you. I love you. And then, there's this command. If you skip on down just to the end of verse 12, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the command. Therefore, in light of looking to Christ, in light of His humble love, in light of His obedience to the point of death, and that sacrifice for you, in light of looking forward to being exalted one day in the presence of Jesus, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, before we even explain what that means, I want to make sure we don't overlook something. In English, you can be singular or it can be plural, right? Sometimes in Chicago, it would be you guys, you know, or in the South, it'd be you all, y'all, you know, one word. But here, that's what he's saying. Use guys. He's saying y'all. It's plural you. It's church together. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When we read it, we might read Sean. We might read your individual name. You do that. And that's true. But it's not you do it alone. It's you do it together. Humble love learns together. And that's why later on in the passage, he begins to show leaders that we should learn from and emulate examples in the body that this church should be learning from so that they are equipped both in example and in encouragement to love humbly. Look at verse at the end of verse 16 leading into 17. Paul in prison, he says this, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. How would he be proud if the Philippian church was walking in faith and they were giving their lives in love for one another and there was unity and they were pouring their lives out for a lost and dying world? He would say, even if I die, it's been worth it all. Where do I get that? Verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Even if it means I must die, I'm glad because Jesus is going forth. And you would have been strengthened. And you're shining as lights in a dark world. Work out your salvation so I'm not running in vain. He says... Even if I have to die, this image of being poured out on the altar as a sacrifice. What happened on the altar? You slaughtered a lamb. Even if I have to die. He's hearkening back to the first chapter when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I stay alive, it's Jesus and I can radiate and show off Jesus. But if I die, I get more of Jesus because I'll be in his presence forever. So either way, I am glad. Is it not remarkable to 
to be so freed from thinking so much about yourself that your greatest joy is the joy of another. That is freedom. Freed so much from thinking about yourself that your greatest joy is the joy of another. Those are hard things for me to embody. God pushes me most to try to embody that for this church, but also as a parent. Last weekend, we, when we moved to our house in southeast Raleigh, we put up a basketball goal. Fiberglass basketball goal. Fiberglass backboard anyway. Metal pole. And we have about 10 to 15 kids from the neighborhood that come and play ball almost every weekend. And so you can imagine, you have 13 to 15, 16-year-olds out there playing ball. That fiberglass backboard has seen better days. So there was a couple of times when the wind blew through, the, back, the whole goal fell down, and it shattered this backboard so much so that after a point, you started shooting on it, and the whole backboard was just flapping. <laughs> That's not a good thing to have. So... We saved up, and we went and got a basketball goal. I left at 2 o'clock to get the basketball goal. Got it home by 2.45. It was in a box. Didn't come assembled. I sat down with my dad's help. I might add, with my son's help, 9 o'clock. The goal is not done. Finally, at 9.30, we lift that thing up. And it looks like it works. has this wonderful mechanism that if you push the handle, it'll raise and lower. (laughs) I pushed with all my might. That bad boy wouldn't squeeze a bit. I messed something up. (laughs) So we went to bed. The next morning, I woke up, worked on it for two more hours, finally got it working. And there's a basketball goal. (laughs) questioning the whole time, was this really worth it? But when I saw my boy's joy, when I've seen those neighborhood kids come over and they really love playing ball, it begins to make it worth it. That's just a small fraction of what Paul is saying. It's worth it all because my greatest joy is found in your joy. And he goes on and he says, church, we need one another. We need to be knitted together in humble love so that we are working for one another's joy. Paul was then saying, you need to then be glad as well. Look at my example and follow it. Be glad as well. And that's verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's saying, look at my example and imitate me. Be glad that the gospel's going forth, even if I die. And then he gives two more examples. Do you see where he's going? This humble love is a community project. We need models to follow. We need people to come alongside us and encourage us. And listen to how he talks. The first one is Timothy, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I, may, I too may be cheered by news of you. I just want to hear how you're doing. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's both a beautiful statement about Timothy and a painful statement as a leader who develops leaders. Paul, pouring his life out to try to raise up leader after leader after leader, and he's got one. He's got one. One who is described as genuinely concerned for that church's welfare. Have you ever been there? Have you ever poured your life out for someone? The Bible says that every believer is supposed to be a disciple maker. Every believer is supposed to fight to make more believers by giving the gospel and showing gospel love. And so it means that to be a Christian, you're going to at some point be pouring into someone else. 
This is an example that says when you pour into someone else, it will not always be a thank-filled job. It might be thankless. The very people you pour into might end up criticizing you. Might end up talking bad about you. Might end up walking away from the very thing that you have been laboring to teach them gives life. Paul could say, I've only got one. I've got Timothy. But what did he do? He also focused on the successes. He focused on the grace. And I'm going to send you Timothy because he genuinely cares for you. Here's the indictment of the other leaders. They all seek their own interests, verse 21, not those of Jesus Christ. They all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the parallel from earlier in Philippians 2? Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, they all sought their own interests, not that of Jesus Christ. What is of greatest interest to others, whether they admit it or not? It is Jesus Christ. He was saying genuine love from Timothy was to have Jesus as his agenda for getting it to this community. And when I was reading through this, it just hit me. I was just like, oh God, make that true of me. Make it true right here. Just a genuine, selfless concern for the good of another. And that's not meant to be just for the highfalutin spiritual. It's meant to be for those who walk with Jesus. Oh God, make every single one of us genuinely concerned. Genuinely concerned for Jesus' agenda, His interests that He goes forth. The second example is of Epaphroditus. He says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and fellow soldier. And your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So you follow the the picture. The Philippians sent a representative to comfort Paul. Once again, how much we need one another. When we're down, we need someone else. But they heard that he was ill and they wanted to know how he was doing. And now this letter brings verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Meaning, I loved Epaphroditus. I would have been broken if he died, but he was spared. And so I was encouraged as well by God's healing mercy. Now verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious That is, that I may know what's going on with you. So receive Him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking His life to complete what was lacking in your service to Me. What was lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul? The whole church couldn't be there, right? So they send somebody who can be their presence, can be their representative. In a day where social media is rampant, it is statistically proven that we are feeling feeling most lonely of most societies. As social media increases, and although we're interconnected with now more people than maybe histories have in the past, we still feel most lonely of previous cultures. You know why? Because nothing replaces kneecap to kneecap, eyeball to eyeball presence. Social media is wonderful and it's a gift. And people use that in such wonderful ways. Yes, it can be a vice, but it can be a gift. But don't let it replace presence. And here he says, honor such men. If I were to poll some of you who are in the faith, you would have someone. It could be a parent. It could be a youth pastor. It could be a previous pastor. It could be somebody in your community group. It could be a spouse. It could be just a friend. Someone who encouraged you in the faith. 
Someone who kept you going when you were low. He says, honor such people. Honor them. Thank them for their investment in your life. Because in so doing, you acknowledge yourself to be a learner and they get encouraged to keep pouring out. Because Epaphroditus was to the point of death. Sometimes just someone say, thank you, you've made a difference in my life. Keep someone going as they stare right into the face of suffering. Because love will mean you will suffer. Love means you'll suffer. That's just how it works. And so, he's saying, look at this example. Be encouraged. Learn together. And give, 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 give. If grace has been poured onto you, now pour it out. Last weekend, my wife and I celebrated our 17-year wedding anniversary. We had one person, that is a gift, and it says a lot about her, I tell you. One person came up to us while we were there, and we said we've been married um, 17 years, and they said, like, how old were you when you got married? I said, we were 12, but it's been, okay, no, (laughs) it's not true. But when we were out, we went to Charleston, South Carolina for our anniversary. And while we were there, we went to Boone Plantation. Had never done a plantation thing before, and we, we did that. And as we went out there, as you go down into the plantation, there were trees everywhere. And the owner of this plantation in the early 1700s, early 1700s, planted these trees. You can't understand. The, the base of the trees are as big as this stage. I mean, they are massive. But as we went on a tour, a guy drove us around this over 400 kind of acre plantation. It used to be almost 2,400 acres. He told a story about these trees. These trees have a root system that go 50 to 80 feet down and out. And they were planted strategically together so that when their roots shot out, they would actually become interwoven with one another. So that they said they have had hurricanes run right down the center of these trees and they have not been blown over because of their interconnectedness. And it just hit me. Like, this is what Paul's talking about. The church must be interconnected. When he says, you church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it is, we need one another. And if one is plucked out, it compromises the strength. Church, your life doesn't just matter for you. Whether you know it or not, you affect the whole body. And humble love does this. Humility does not say, look at all of my gifts. I am really gifted. You need somebody to greet? You need somebody to do me? I can do it all. I'm your gift. That's not humility. And that's pretty clear to see, right? That's arrogance. But arrogance is also saying, I have nothing to offer. You're making God a liar. He says when God saves you, He fills you up with His Spirit to use those gifts that He gives you to strengthen the body. And when we are not engaged together in loving one another, in loving the city together, we are weakening one another. And when we just randomly think that it doesn't matter that we're around or we can just pluck ourselves out and go here, there, we are compromising the structure of this church. You matter. And Christ says that we matter together. Humble love learns together. It is an interwoven faith. We have a together faith, not an island, an individual faith. Your faith must be yours alone, but it is never staying alone. And so, together, humble love spiritually labors. And that's where we see then verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Humble love spiritually labors. The emphasis here is on work. 
strive, toil. This is a sweaty page of the Bible. It is dripping with the difficulty of spiritually walking with God. He says here, as you have always obeyed, always there meaning this constantly sense of you're characterized by obedience. He uses always like this in Luke 18 when he says, I tell you a parable so that you'll always pray and never give up. It's not like every single word that comes out of your mouth is a prayer. It's that your, your demeanor is regularly prayerful. And so here he's saying, you are characterized by obedience. But don't look backwards and say, look how obedient I have been. Work hard looking forward together for your own salvation. Here, he is not saying work in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying out of your salvation, out of what Christ has done in your life, you must work so that you don't fall into temptation. So that you don't sell out your soul to the world. Because it is a crooked and twisted world that it says here. A dark world, a crooked and twisted generation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When we went to the plantation, the reason we chose it is because it was the only plantation that had a, uh, an exhibition or told the story about the slaves that were there on the plantation. See, I don't go to plantations much because I hate the fact that sometimes it celebrates slavery. But this one had a healthy picture of slavery and walked you through the slave homes. And so as we went uh, to learn about this, there was a people called the Gullah people. The Gullah people, it's actually a language. It's where multiple African tribes who came over together into Charleston, South Carolina, they couldn't communicate with one another. So they began to form kind of this hybrid from English and from African languages and they developed this Gullah language and Gullah culture. And there are still Gullah people in Charleston area today and there was a woman there, a Gullah lady, who began to tell about those days in slavery that had been handed down from generation to generation. And as she did, she talked about the time when these slaves were out in the fields. An adult would work 10 to 12 hours per day. A child, which was up till age 12, would work about 8 hours a day. But they would be treated with the most horrific of treatment. And then, under the guise of emancipation, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation comes forth, slavery illegal, they run into sharecropping. Which was just a sham. Because sharecropping was this way that, okay, well, now we can't enslave them for nothing, so we've got to pay them something. So the way it would work is a slave would work all week long, and then the now employer, you know, we'll call them an employer rather than a master, and so now they'll come and they'll say, Oh, wait, you know that mule you used? That was mine. You know that house you stayed in? That was mine. Oh, you know, these, these goods, I'm going to raise the price of the goods. And so now, they're always in debt. Never getting ahead. That's where the song comes from. 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. You produced all this. And you were constantly going backwards. What would keep you sane in a system like that? You know what it was? It was singing. Out in the fields, before when they came from Africa, these slaves would communicate, actually communicate via drums. So the the slave owners pulled away the drums, and so they began singing. And they, this woman sang some songs, songs of grief about how I'm missing my mom or how I can't, I'm missing my children because they were all ripped apart. But they would also sing songs like, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. While they're working in the field, after being beaten, they would sing songs to each other. Songs about Jesus to encourage their souls. While they were working physically, they also, in order to make it, had to work spiritually. Do you know that's why we sing? Singing here is not a preamble to the preaching. Singing is such that you will remember the truths of God. 
We're singing truths about God so that when you're low, when you forget half the words that I said this morning, you can go to the Bible. That's why we preach from the Word. And maybe God would bring a song to your mind. It takes discipline. It takes energy. It takes effort. It takes sweat. But that's how those slaves kept going. It was their Jesus. Many of them singing songs about God's faithfulness in the midst of tragedy. Friends, anything worth having will not come easily. It takes work. And sometimes, sometimes we run in and out of God's presence and we fault God because we gave Him like three and a half minutes and He didn't just shock us out of our system with His presence. He can honor three and a half minutes and I praise Him that He does regularly. But if that's your regular diet and you're only eating morsel after morsel after morsel, you're going to get really hungry. And you can either blame yourself that you're not feasting or you can blame God. And many try to blame God. And we are making excuse after excuse after excuse. Excuses that we don't have enough time. Our life in this season is just too much. We're just too full and the excuses are killing us and crippling us and leading us to be bitter. And he just says, beloved, listen to how he talks affectionately, beloved, work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't give up. You can't be half hearted. Well, how will I have strength to do that? Because I'm tired. Paul says, hey, I got an answer for that. Because when you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, fear and trembling means I can't do it without you, God. He says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You are never alone. That's how you're going to be able to work. I will give you everything you need. I will fight for you. I will come alongside you. I love you. You are mine. And I will work in your will because I'm molding your heart and I will give you all the strength you need to do the labor. I will and I work for my good pleasure so that you might please me with your life. You are not alone. In Exodus 33, Moses says something similar. And I was just struck with that this week. Moses, he's terrified to lead the people of God where God has him to lead them. He doesn't think he's got the, got the goods. What am I going to do? And God says to him in Exodus thirty-three, fourteen, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said this. This is beautiful. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If you don't go, I don't go. Friends, there are people all over this world, including ourselves, that can get success without God. Moses is not okay with that. He says, if you don't go, I don't want to go. Because left to myself, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to serve myself. I need you. And so he goes on in Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found grace in my sight. And I know you by name. I know you. And you know what Moses says right after that? Then, oh God, show me your glory. Shine brightly to me. Blow me away with your greatness. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who's working in you. Don't try to go without Him. Plead, earn, yearn for Him to fill you up. We have a family prayer. I wrote it in like the second year of our church. It was just a, a way to try to take honestly truths from this passage and make it memorable. And so if I were to march my kids up here, they would know this prayer. We pray it periodically over a meal. And it says this, Lord, fill us now with hearts of praise and keep us from our thankless ways. 
We long to eat and live and strive in the power You supply. So may we work with all our might to use our time for Your delight. And then we say in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, fill us with You. Show me Your glory. And while I'm striving, I can't strive alone. Fill me up. Come alongside me. If you don't go, I don't want to go. And so He says, humble love spiritually works. Spiritually labors. And it does so so that you can shine as a light in a dark world. And here's what it says here in this text. Look at verse 14. And we'll be done. Specifically, what does it look like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? The Philippian church had some issues. Specifically, they were complaining people and they were fighting among each other. It says here, do all things without grumbling or questioning or quarreling that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You are grumbling, church, he was saying. You let complaints just flow out your mouth. You're filled with self-pity, which we all know is a drug. We just love it when people tell us how hard we have it and how busy we are. As if that was what makes us something. And so we complain and we complain and we complain. Do you know what? Paul is actually intentionally referencing Deuteronomy 32. And he's doing so because in Deuteronomy 32, the Israelite people were quarreling and they were grumbling about how Moses was leading them. And they said, just get me back to Egypt. At least there we had food. You know, they forgot that they were being their tar was being beat out of them. But that's not the point. Just how foolishness we are at times. And he's saying, this is how you're acting, church. And they're like, how? Because when you grumble about your circumstances, ultimately, you're grumbling against your God. And when you fight among one another, ultimately, you are against your God. Disunity is not just horizontal, it is vertical. And God says it's serious. Because where there's disunity and where you're constantly talking about how bad everything is, you're not shining as a light in a dark world. Now let's be really clear. There is a holy way to share weaknesses. And there's an unhealthy way to be a complainer. Yes, we must share our weaknesses. But do so in such a way that you genuinely Believe you need the prayers of people and that you're not ultimately wanting attention for self, but you're wanting to do what Paul says. I boast in my weakness so that in my weakness, Christ's strength can be made perfect. That's not complaining. That's Godward. But when it's a hating of circumstances or a hating of people or a, just a, a sense of complaining about all that's going on, he's saying you're making a mockery of your God. And you know what? He said, all you're doing is echoing back to the world exactly what they look like. They're an unforgiving people. They're self-absorbed. They feast on the drug of self-pity. If you look just like that, you're not shining as anything. Because friends, I don't know if you know this. Our world, it says, is dark and this generation is twisted and crooked. Now, some of us in this room could say, yeah, murders happen, that's horrible. There's racism, that's horrible. There's all kinds of wars everywhere, that's horrible. I'm talking about not only those, but Solomon says it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. Do you know it's, it's the areas that we are tempted to overlook is this is just how it is. That's eroding our soul. When you watch the TV... And fake is best. 
Women, men trying to look like airbrush models, fake happiness on red carpet. For days after events, they're talking about how much money people spent on dresses and outfits and who was the best dress and who was the worst dress. Clothing becomes king. How much they spent on it is admired. It reminded me of a scene from the Hunger Games. In, either in the book or in the movie, you know, they all get all made up, intentionally made up, have all these fancy dresses, and they're drinking and drinking all to celebrate that these children were headed to death. It was meant to be seen as absurd, and yet we don't see our culture as absurd. It's a dark world. Good hearts are more desirable than good clothing. And loving Christ is more important than being loved because of how you look. The world is also twisted. It twists God's designs. It says busy is best. It says distraction is normal. It says silence is absurd and stillness is impossible. And yet God calls out and says, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes the holiest thing you can do is shut off your cell phone. Put it on do not disturb. Something. The world continues to twist God's good intentions. Sex is the culmination of a relationship, not friendship. And then love is is being tolerant. It's always agreeing. That's love. Saying something's okay. But that's because the world has no concept of what it means to love your enemies. None. Because our world doesn't know how to deal with betrayal except through revenge. Or I'll never talk to you again. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do if people are not repentant is to give them over to their sins. Stop enabling it. But it's always from a position of brokenness and not retaliation. A position of forgiveness that says, if you would only turn, I am here for you. Love, humble love, is filled with second chances. It's filled with them. Our world twists that. And Paul is saying, if you're disunified and fighting with each other, if you're constantly filled with complaining, you look just like the world and you don't shine brightly. The images of a cave in my mind. A cave that if you don't get out of it, you will die. Which will you be more attracted to? Someone who has a little tiny flashlight whose batteries are so bad that it flickers off and on and the beam that it shoots out goes only two feet. Versus the one who has a lantern that lights up the entire cave and will point you to the way out. Which one are you more attracted to? You're more attracted to the one that saves your life. And here he's saying, Don't echo back to the world unforgiveness and self-absorption. Echo back to the world. I am distinct from the world for the world. Echo back to the world that they are loved. Draw people near who are against you. Don't push away. For Christ gave His life for sinners that they might be changed. And so... May we not be just one star shining in a bright sky. But may we be many stars united in a canopy of brilliance to make people stand in awe of God. Let's pray. God, I ask that You would show us Your brilliant glory and love and joy and power that we might humbly love and shine as lights in this dark world. Father, may the darkness of our world not lead us to self-righteousness, but to brokenness. And may we be filled with such humility that we look to Jesus, the perfect humble one. And that God, we are willing and able to learn together and we see our lives as interconnected, the need to, to be together. And that God, we would be filled with humble love that spiritually labors and works together that our faith might grow and that we might shine as lights in this dark world. Lord, I pray, as Your Word says here, it comes from holding fast 
to your word of life. So may we not let your word go. May we not let your word go. May we say with Moses, if you don't go, I don't want to go. In these moments right here, oh God, strengthen us to grope for you. And I pray this so that you are pleased and get glory. Right now where you are, if the Lord is encouraging you, celebrate. If the Lord is convicting you, confess. He says that He dwells with the lowly and contrite. If God is burdening you for someone, pray for them. Maybe even go to them in this moment. But let's make this time a time of celebrating our Savior and asking God to fill us up with humble love, which is true obedience. After a time of prayer, we'll then have the opportunity to either give or use these pledge cards to give to our Loving the City celebration and our Loving the City offering. If God is burdening your heart for that, you give. But right now, the greatest thing that we can do is receive. Receive more of Jesus. And then the greatest gift we can give is our very lives. And then we pray how God would stir us to give our resources to love this city and shine His lights. Spend some time in prayer. And then we'll sing and give.